When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it. In order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Today we have something very special for you. Over the years, we've interviewed many of the world's experts in the field of influence. In this episode, you're going to hear from past guests who share their research and techniques. Jonah Berger, professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a best-selling author and world expert in social influence and consumer behavior. Zoe Chance is a professor at Yale School of Management and a researcher, speaker, and consultant who specializes in persuasion, influence, and behavioral economics. And Vanessa Bonds, who is a social psychologist and professor at Cornell University. Her research focuses on how people make judgments and decisions in social contexts. Buckle up, there's a lot of information coming your way. Let's start this off with Jonah Berger explaining how influence works without us even realizing it. We don't see influence. Sure, maybe we see it in others. We see people dressing the same or listening to the same music. But when it comes to ourselves, we just don't see it. We think we're completely different. We think we buy what we buy because we like it or we like the color, it was on sale. We don't realize these subtle and often surprising effects that others are having on our behavior. But second, influence isn't just one flavor. It's not just that we do the same as others, which is what we often think of when we think of influence. Just as often we do something different, we avoid something because others were doing it. Or, or sometimes we're similar and different at the same time. We buy the same car brand, but we buy it in a different color. Influence is a bad word, right? You say influence, people think manipulation. Americans love to see, we love to see ourselves as independent, like special, unique snowflakes that be so different from everybody else, you know particularly the millennials, our parents raised them to say, you know, we're different. So if difference is good, then we don't want to think that we're influenced, that we're the same. Uh, we don't want to think that others are affecting us. But we've actually done a bunch of research on this. And it turns out that even when influence is good, even when it would be a good thing to be influenced, people still don't think they're susceptible to it. It's not just about self-presentation. People don't see it. And the reason is that it often happens non-consciously, below our awareness. Take, for example, how people name their kids. Everybody says, if you ask them how they 
name their kid. They say, oh, my aunt or uncle, this is to honor them. Or, you know, this was my best friend's name growing up. They talk about their own likes, their own preferences. We actually looked at the data. We sifted through 100 years of baby names, how popular each name was every year for the last 125 years. And what we found is that names tend to be popular when other names have been popular recently. So let's say Lisa was popular last year. Well, now other names like Larry and Lindsay might be more likely to be popular this year. Even though people think they're picking them based on their own likes and dislikes, they show up at kindergarten with their kids and everybody has the same name. And the reason is being affected by others. We don't realize that hearing Lisa, for example, makes Lindsay or Larry sound better. But the more fact that we've heard that sound makes the name more appealing. Even hurricanes. You would think hurricanes would hurt the popularity of names. Hurricane Katrina, for example, should decrease the number of babies born with Katrina. And they may. But if you look at other K names, well, 10% more babies are born with K names the year after Hurricane Katrina. Because people heard that K name a lot. Katrina made K names sound more familiar. And so they were more likely to pick those names, even though they thought it was their own preferences that were driving their choices. When it comes to us trying to influence those around us, there's one very common mistake that we all make at the beginning. In our 2020 interview with Jonah on his book, The Catalyst, he explains this mistake as well as a solution. When we try to persuade people, uh, we try to change minds, we try to change action, we often take a particular type of approach, and that is some version of pushing. Right? We think if we just add more reasons, if we provide more facts, more figures, more, more information, people will come around. And it's clear why we have that intuition. right? If there's like a, a chair sitting in the middle of a room and we want to move that chair, what's a good way to move it? Well, pushing. Pushing is usually a very good way to move physical objects. We push a chair, it goes. When we apply that idea to people, though, it gets a little bit more complicated because when we push people, people don't just go along. They often dig in their heels, they push back, and they often even do the opposite of what we want. And so rather than pushing, we've, we've got to figure out a different way to go. And I think a lot of us, when we rationalize our change, we don't think about the emotional component. We do feel like it was the facts and the preponderance of evidence that changed our minds when we look back in hindsight, but that's really not what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also interesting, you know, there's a difference between trying to change our own behavior uh, and trying to change others' behavior. Uh, you know, if we're a sales piece person, we might be trying to change the client's mind. If we're an employee, we're trying to change a boss's mind. If we're a, a leader, we might be trying to change organizational culture. We often focus a lot on the change that we want to have happen, uh, but we focus a lot less on the person or people that we're trying to change. And, and that's part of the problem. It, it turns out there's a better way to change minds. But it's not about pushing. We have to think about change a little differently. I think a, you know, a great way to think about it is you know, imagine your car is parked on a hill, let's say, and you want to get it to go. And so you step on the gas, you step on the gas, it's not going. What do you do? You often say, well, God, I need more gas. If I just step on the gas harder, it'll go. Sometimes we don't need to step on the gas. Uh, sometimes we just need to remove the parking brake. So how do we remove the parking brake? Well, it turns out negotiators are incredibly good at doing just that. Listen to Jonah explain one of his most powerful tools. So often we don't see influence because we're unaware of it. We don't realize these things are affecting our behavior. We want to see ourselves as driving our own choices. So we think we do and we ignore the subtle factors that affect what we do. But the first thing, and, and the reason I really wrote Invisible Influence in the first place, is to help realize these effects that are happening to them. You know, we can't correct for them. We can't use these tools if we don't see them and understand them. 
So the first place to start is just seeing influence in the world around us. Once we see it, we can take advantage of its upsides and avoid its downsides. We can you know, make better choices and choose our own influence, and we can influence those around us. So one simple tip uh, and trick I often share with people is the idea of being a chameleon or mimicking those uh, around you. And a, a cousin of mine was talking about, uh, you know, this big negotiation he had coming up. He was, they were offering him a new job, but they weren't giving him enough money. And so what could he do in, in that negotiation to be more successful? And there's some great research that was done looking at what makes negotiators successful. They looked across a variety of people, what makes folks successful, what do they have in common? They found that one trick, uh, one simple trick led negotiators to be five times as successful. And that trick merely was mimicking their negotiating partner. Subtly, subtly going after whether the mannerisms, the behavior, the actions of others and imitating them, almost like a chameleon fits into their environment. So if the negotiating partner crossed their legs, they'd do the same. If the person cocked their head to the side slightly, they'd do the same. And it's not just in negotiations. In a sales context, for example, a, a waiter or a waitress that repeats your order back to you word for word. So if, if you say, I'd like a Caesar salad with chicken dressing on the side and a Diet Coke, and they say, okay, great. You'd like a Caesar salad dressing on the side and uh, with chicken and a Diet Coke, say exact word for word back to you. Well, they just got a 70% higher tip. And so it's not just about listening. We often hear about listening. It's also about emulating, subtly going after and mimicking the mannerisms, the behaviors, and the language patterns of others. It makes us feel more similar. It makes other people like us, trust us more, and it facilitates interactions. Something that all three experts agree on is that your influence isn't just what you say to others, but also relies on how you listen to them. Being influential requires that you meet people where they are. They must know that you share that emotional space. In our X-Factor Accelerator sessions, we practice these techniques so that it becomes part of your communication. You'll get feedback on your interactions to learn the cues that you need to see and hear to know that you're gaining influence. Here's Jonah again as he explains the three layers of listening required for influence. And then we'll let Zoe Chance expand on this idea and add one crucial piece you absolutely need to listen for and how to react to it. There's a lot of research on listening. I've talked to some great listeners, but also reviewed a lot of the literature. And, and listening actually has three pieces. Uh, and I think we understand that intuitively, but we don't always call them out. Right? And so the first is attending. If we don't attend to what someone is saying, there's no way we're going to hear what they're saying, right? And so it's really about paying attention. Uh, the second is understanding, right? We may have paid attention, but I may have misunderstood what you said. Uh, and so even though I paid attention, doesn't guarantee I understand. But even if we understand, really listening, we have to show that person that we listened. It's not enough to actually have understood what they said. We have to indicate to them that we've understood for it to have an impact on them, right? Yes, we might've heard it, but if they don't know that we listened, it's not going to have the, the beneficial impact. And so a lot of the strategies and approaches to, to listening is really not just having listened, but having shown to other people that you listened, right? Uh, people talk a lot about something called emotion labeling, right? Where, um, uh, you know, I use this often uh, with our son where I say, you know, you sound like you're really frustrated. Right? You sound like you're really angry. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay to be angry, but it means that I've heard that you're feeling this way. Right? I've, it's, and not I'm ignoring this thing and it's jumping right to the solution, right? but acknowledging that I've heard what you said. Um, and even if it's not something I like, I still, I still heard it. Right, and I talked to some hostage negotiators uh, as part of uh, this book, and you know they talk about using this strategy a lot, where it's really kind of showing that you understood. Hey, this is why uh, that person's holed up in there with two hostages. This is why this person wants to commit suicide. This is why this person wants to do this bad thing. I may not agree 
with the reasons why they're doing it. I may not want to let them do those things that they want to do, but at least acknowledging that I've heard what they said is going to make them feel listened to, which can make them much more likely to, to come around, right? This happens often in disagreements with spouses and friends, right? Someone says something and someone says, no, no, this is what I want. And the first person says, you didn't hear me. And so I think part of that is just literally saying, hey, not just saying I've heard you, but showing I've heard you. Let me repeat back to you what you said or label your emotions so it's clear that I not only attended and understood, but you know that I understood. And the fact that you know that is going to make you trust me at least a little more. And we're testing those assumptions because sometimes you might mislabel the emotion and they might not be feeling that at all. And of course, if you're trying to persuade someone and you're not even putting them in the right bucket, you're yep. going to have a very difficult oh, that's, time. That's such a good point, right? It's like a doctor. If you misunderstand, if you misdiagnose the problem, you're going to bring out the wrong tool for the solution. And so I think the powerful thing about some of these approaches, emotion labeling, you know, uh, talking back, saying what you heard in a nice positive way, both shows that you paid attention, but also, as you said, tests that assumption because that assumption is wrong, or you didn't understand it all the way, they'll correct you, but now you have a good sense of where they are, and you may not agree with them, but at least you know what problem you're trying to solve. I completely agree that listening is the key and least valued skill of influence because everyone is the most important person to themselves, right? So you're the most important person to yourself, so you're wanting to do the thing, but they're the most important person to themselves, and so it's figuring out how to put your attention on them. First of all, there's just everyday listening where we're waiting to speak, and that's the majority of the time for all of us when anyone is speaking. And then you can listen a little bit deeper to listen for what are they thinking and you're trying to take their perspective and you get some more insight there and this is better for a relationship. Going a little deeper, you can practice listening for how are they feeling and this will help you start to develop some empathy, although remind yourself that you could be wrong in either any of these cases, right? You don't know what they're thinking unless you're asking. You don't know what they're feeling unless you're asking. Um, and sometimes you're feeling these heightened emotions that you imagine them to be feeling can be just distracting and unhelpful. There's a level below this where you're listening kind of like Sherlock Holmes to what they're not saying. This is a weird experience that can be exhilarating for you as the listener because you feel like you have this power. Henry Kissinger said that this was the key to diplomacy is listening in this way because they do have tells and signals of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're concerned about. But this is another level at which definitely you can still be wrong and your ego can get in the way. So watch out for it. The level of listening that I encourage people to practice because it's the very most powerful is listening for the other person's values. So you're trying to hear what are ultimately their deep, deep values. And these are typically values so deep that they're one word values like freedom, like love, like justice. What is it they care about at the deep level that's informing their opinion? And then you reflect it back to them and you say, it sounds like you care a lot about equity. Well, that doesn't sound very sticky. Maybe you care a lot about justice. The thing is, it actually almost doesn't matter if you're right. What matters is that you're trying. They are so delighted 
that you are respecting them by listening so carefully to want to understand what it is they care about. And if you're wrong, they'll just tell you and you'll just have a conversation about it. When they feel heard by you in this deep way, then they're in the position to be able to consider also listening to you. Now that you know what to listen for, let's look at some powerful ways in which you can just slightly tweak what you're saying for a much more powerful impact. In the next clip, Jonah Berger explains how just switching out of you for we or I can make a world of change. Yeah. I mean, even think about the way we use pronouns. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing a bunch of work at the moment with a colleague named Grant Packard, who's sort of an expert on language, and he has a, a, a bit of work on pronouns. But, you know, let's say we're having a bad connection on this call, right? There are different ways to use language to talk about that. I can say, hey, you need to speak louder. What does that suggest? It suggests it's your fault, right? I can suggest we have a bad connection. Now it's not your fault. Together, we have a bad connection. I can say, I can't hear you. That's taking responsibility, saying, you know, maybe you're speaking loudly, maybe you're not, but part of this may be me. I can't hear you. And just by using different pronouns to describe what's happening, right? We have a bad connection. I can't hear you. You're in there, but, you know, I can't hear you is different than you need to speak louder to me. While the same quote unquote information may be there, the assigning of blame, the question of who's in control, who has responsibility, and all those things is different. And so I think in the past few years, doing some of this research, I've become much more attuned to very subtle differences in language, right? Where often people disagree because one person feels like the other person is assigning blame. They may not even be assigning that blame, but the language they're using assigns, assigns that blame. So whether it's team speak, you know, saying, hey, we're on the same team, let's solve this together. I'm here to help you. You know, whatever it is that shows, hey, maybe we're together rather than separate is going to bring you a little bit more to, to my side. You learn your communication from multiple sources, so it's difficult to identify patterns that don't serve you well, which is why practicing these concepts and getting feedback is so crucial. After all, people don't tell you you're communicating poorly, they just avoid talking to you. If you feel stuck in your relationships, change the way you deliver your communication by changing your pronoun usage. Our classes expose these patterns so that you speak with authority and intent quickly you'll notice people engaging with you more and hanging on to every word you say. Zoe Chancellor refers to the same researcher and explains how changing just a few words will change your perceived status. This is very cool research by a guy at the University of Texas named James Pennebaker. Others have built on it, but he did the seminal work on these aren't gender pronouns, it's first person pronouns. And he was interested in studying the relationship between pronouns and power. So he did textual analyses of all of these conversations, emails, speeches, all of these formal and informal things that people said to each other and just counted the number of times that a person said I or me or mine. And what he found was a very strong relationship. And if you're listening, see if you can guess the relationship between pronouns and power. And maybe because you're a listener of this show, you already can guess it. But a lot of people have it the opposite, that they believe that powerful people are talking about themselves because they're self-centered. And it's actually the opposite, that when we feel empowered or when we at least don't feel disempowered, then we don't need to focus on ourselves because we're not self-conscious. So pronouns are a cue of self-consciousness, which is anti-charisma. The thing that's hard about practicing, eliminating some, and obviously it's not that you're never gonna talk about yourself or say I, me, or mine, 
but the practice of eliminating some of these first person statements and other diminishers I'll talk about in a sec is that if you are monitoring your conversation for self-consciousness, you are having to be self-conscious while you're self-monitoring. So I encourage people, if there's anything you're trying to eliminate from your language, that you do it just with an email and just anytime you feel like it or have a regular practice of scanning your emails. And that way you're not having to try to be self-monitoring, but not self-conscious. So this idea that we're using these I, me, mine kind of statements a lot when we feel self-conscious is because we're using them very often as diminishers. And diminishers are any statements that make us smaller in order to not be threatening to other people. Statements like, uh, I just thought, like, I was wondering, um, I could be wrong, but, and we use all kinds of hedges, like, actually, maybe, kind of, sort of. A lot of these diminishers are introductory preambles to the thing that we wanted to say that are just so incredibly hard to listen to. And so the other person has tuned out by the time we got to the actual thing. There are gender effects here. So women use diminishers and these kinds of preambles more than men do. But this is more a result of power differences than gender differences, at least in my opinion and the opinions of some other researchers who study this stuff. Johnny and AJ here. Are you ready to take your career to the next level in 2023? Looking to grow your high-value social circle? You are one relationship away from changing your entire life. Your social circle, professional network, and lack of confidence are thwarting your attempts at accelerating your career. But there's something you can do about it. After coaching over 10,000 clients, including military special operators and Fortune 500 executives, we've learned a thing or two about what it actually takes to grow your network. In fact, over 90% of the amazing guests on this show are from referrals in our own personal networks. We've packaged our best insights inside a course called Social Capital. And as a thank you for being a podcast listener, we want to give you this training for free to start your new year. Inside Social Capital, you'll get three resources to help you grow your network or social circle with simple, actionable tips to fill your inbox with connections and phone with messages to hang out. These resources include our famous social capital formula, a simple strategy that you can use to grow your high-value network daily. Your network is your true net worth. To get your hands on this training and immediately start improving your relationships, go to theartofcharm.com SC. That's theartofcharm.com SC. Remember, you can do something to change your career trajectory and instantly grow your social capital today at theartofcharm.com slash SC. Jonah has some excellent thoughts on asking questions to influence, as you'll hear in this next clip. Then you'll hear him expand on the concept of hedging, but not before he gives a powerful tip on how to strengthen your own argument instead of sabotaging it. 
there are so many um, things that questions do. And as I studied them more and more, I become really fascinated in, in the work that they do and, and how they help us. You know, I think many of us think about questions as a way to collect information. If I want to know something, a question is a good way to collect that information. And, and questions certainly do collect information. They do a good job of collecting information, but they, they also do a lot of other things. They, they shape how we're perceived uh, as individuals, whether people like us, whether they think we're smart or not. They shape how conversations evolve. Questions do a great job of directing attention towards certain things rather than, than other things. Um, and they shape interactions and, and how close we get to other people. And as you guys nicely said, sort of how we reveal things about ourselves and, and show our vulnerability. So I'll start with just one example. There's a whole, whole chapter about questions. Let's take asking for advice. So we, we often think, hey, I could use some advice. Uh, I want someone's opinion. I want their perspective. I want their knowledge. I want their information. But man, I don't know if I should ask, right? We're worried that uh, one, asking will bother someone or they you know, won't, uh, won't know what we're, we're interested in. Or even worse, somehow they'll, they'll think less of us, right? Um, they'll think we're not knowledgeable or incompetent. And so we, we don't ask for advice. Turns out that's a, a big mistake. Some some researchers from uh, both Harvard and Wharton did some really nice uh, experiments where they had people have interactions. In some cases, people asked for advice. Uh, in other cases, they didn't. They found that asking for advice doesn't lead us to be perceived as incompetent, doesn't make us seem worse. In fact, it doesn't have no effect. It actually makes us seem better. People that asked for advice were seen as more competent and more knowledgeable. And you might say, well, why, right? Doesn't asking for advice show we don't know what, what we're interested in? But what's interesting about asking for advice is it's less about us and more about the people whose advice we're, we're asking because everyone loves to feel like they have great advice, right? All of us are egocentric. We think our advice is fantastic. And so when someone comes along and they ask us for advice, we go, wow, that person's really smart. Out of all the people they could ask, they asked me for, for advice. And so they must be pretty, pretty sharp. And so uh, asking for advice not only allows us to collect information, but it actually makes us be perceived better by the people we ask as, as well. And asking that question, you're showing somebody that, that you understand that they have a unique view, a unique perspective to them and their experiences, and that you want to know what that is. For a lot of people, they're going to feel like, well, I'm just asking this question that it's pretty general, but really it, it isn't. It, and that's why people who are going to be in that conversation with you are going to feel their ego being stroked because they get to share that unique experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, b building on what you just said, you know, there's another type of question people call, call follow-up questions. And, and what does that mean? When someone says, Hey, I really enjoyed that meeting, not just saying, Oh, I did as well, but what'd you like about it? Or, um, yeah, I, I thought that movie was really, really interesting. Oh, what did you, what did you like? Why did you find it interesting? Research finds whether look at dating situations, getting to know you conversations, a variety of different situations, questions, uh, lead people to like us more, but follow-up questions in particular are, are impactful because what questions and, and follow-up questions do in particular when we ask them, as, as you nicely said, the right way is they show we care. Right when when someone cares enough about what we're saying, not just to sort of take the conversation in a completely different direction, but pick up on what we said, show they heard it, show they want to build on it and learn by asking more. Well, it suggests they care about us. They're responsive um, and they're interested in learning more about us, and as a result, we like them more. In this next clip, Jonah discusses his own ineffectual patterns. He's proof you can't identify the patterns yourself. If you want elite communication, you must break these patterns, and having a trained ear that can spot them instantly takes months or even years off of your development. 
Yeah. So this is some some recent research, actually. I don't even know if it's out yet, but it's it's almost out. Um, that uh, a colleague and, and friend Grant Packard and I uh, did, and and the key intuition here is, as you said, is is we often talk about things in certain ways. Uh, we could say I liked this restaurant, or I like this restaurant. Um, the food is good or the food was good. Um, that job candidate seemed interesting or they seem interesting. In all of those cases, we have an opportunity to use the past tense. The food was good. You liked the restaurant. Uh, the candidate seemed good or present tense. They seem good. The food is good. You like the restaurant. And it, it's a subtle shift, but what talking about the present does rather than the past is it makes it seem more general. Right. If I liked the food, it suggests, okay, the time that I went to that particular place, the experience I had, the food was, was good in the past. If I say the food is good or I like that restaurant, it says not only was it good for me in the past, but I'm making a suggestion that it will be good uh, forevermore for anyone else who, who goes, right? When I'm saying the food is good, I'm making an assertion. It's just the truth. The food is uh, is good. And by speaking in the present tense in those cases, it increases persuasion in part because it makes us seem more certain uh, and confident. If someone's willing to not just say they liked the food or that the food was good, but that the food is good uh, and they, they like it, it suggests something is generally true. Uh, and if it's generally true, they must be confident enough to make that assertion. And so we're more likely to listen to them. Now, the flip side is we may find ourselves hedging. And that hedging can actually make us appear less confident. And it's something that Johnny and I catch in our clients all the time. And it's a speech pattern that if you've ever recorded yourself or edited a podcast or listened to, you'll catch yourself doing and, and you can quickly correct. But hedging is often a part of language because, well, we don't want to come across too certain of things. We want to leave ourselves some wiggle room, but it actually makes us appear less confident. Yeah, I find hedges to be quite uh, quite interesting, and and I hedge all the time, right? I'm I'm the worst at this. I say, you know, this might be true, or this will probably work, or I think this is a good course uh, of action. And in some sense, we hedge almost non consciously, right? It's it's like a linguistic crutch, like ums and uhs that we might throw in along the way when we're trying to figure out what to say. But these crutches that we use often undermine our air impact. We did some research looking at uh, tens of thousands of online reviews, uh, as well as conversations and, and other situations. And we found that the more people hedge, the less likely others are to listen to what they have to say, the less likely uh, people are to be persuaded, and the less likely are they to listen to that person in, in the future. Because if, if someone's not even sure themselves whether something will work, or whether themselves whether something is a good idea, why would I go ahead and, and do it? Right on, on the other side, if someone seems really confident uh, of what they're saying, they seem really certain. It's hard to believe that what they're saying couldn't be true because they seem so so confident about it. And so, I'm not saying never hedge. There are certainly situations where where hedging is a good idea, but let's not just hedge because it's convenient. Right? Let's make sure we're using hedges on on purpose. Uh, and and second, right? Maybe sometimes there, we do have uncertainty. Right? We're we're not sure a strategy will work because to work, a few things have to happen. Well, then call out that uncertainty, right? Own that uncertainty rather than saying, you know, I don't know if this will work. Instead, we can say, I think this is a great strategy, but for it to work, these things need to happen. And so we're being very clear where the uncertainty is and telling everybody, hey, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not uncertain that this is a good idea. I do think it's a good idea, but these things have to happen for, for the magic to work. Using slightly different words like was good or is good. Here's another tiny spin on how we use words, this time addressing the other person's identity. 
we'll start simple and maybe get a little bit more complex. But often we're trying to get other people to, to do something. We may be asking them for help. We may be, if we work for a nonprofit, asking them to vote or engage in a number of different actions that we'd like them to uh, engage in. And often when we ask people, we do exactly that. We ask them for help, for example. But a few years ago, a study looked at whether there might be a better way to, to ask for assistance. And so they went to a, a local elementary school and they asked uh, four and five-year-olds to help clean up a classroom. Books were everywhere, uh, toys on the floor, crayons, and so on. Uh, and for many of the students, they said, hey, can you, can you please help clean up? Uh, but for a second group of students, they added just a couple letters at the end of that word. Rather than asking people to help uh, or for help, they asked them to be uh, a helper. Now, the difference between uh, the word help and the word helper is, is quite small. You can probably tell they're two, two letters different, so they're, they're quite, quite small. Uh, yet that small difference had a big uh, impact. People were about a 30% more likely to end up helping if they were asked to be a helper rather than just help. And it, it's not just kids uh, in, in uh, classrooms. There was another study on voting that uh, happened more recently where they asked some people to, to please go vote uh, and other people, they asked them to be uh, a voter. Now, again, the difference between uh, voting or, or going to vote and being a voter is quite, quite small, yet it led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of turning out. And so you could say, well, hold on, vote, voter, help, helper, what's the, the difference? And the difference is that asking people to be a voter or be a helper turns an action into, into an identity. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, there are many actions that we could take. We can go for a run. We can help somebody. We can vote. We can do a variety of different things. We're often busy. We don't have time to do all these actions, but we want to hold desirable identities. I want to see myself as a runner, maybe. I want to see myself as a helper. I want to see myself as a voter. I want to see myself as smart and competent and all these things. And so when the actions become opportunities to claim or sort of hold desired identities, we're more likely to, to do them, right? Uh, voting, sure, yeah, I know I should vote. I don't have the time, but if voting's an opportunity to be a voter, well, now I'm more likely to do it. Similarly, if running's not just a thing I do, but it's an opportunity to show myself and others that I am a runner, I'm, I'm more likely to do it. And so by, by turning actions into identities, we can make ourselves more likely to, to take uh, those desired actions. One misconception that we often see in the new participants in our programs is the idea of the awkward pause. The truth is, a pause need not be awkward at all. And in fact, it can be a very powerful tool in your influence tool set. We had a discussion with Jonah Berger as well as Zoe Chance about the power of the pause. This is also true for professional speaking, where when you're building up energy or you're getting going on your big idea, the way to get everyone's attention attuned keenly to you in that moment is to pause, right? Yeah. And I've never thought of this because I'm not a musician and I haven't thought of it from that same perspective, but just the incredible connection of the intimacy that comes from the quietness or the quiet song after the big loud experience. We film our clients and one of my biggest frustrations is they label that silence as awkward. Awkward. <laughs> and just that labeling of awkward diminishes the power in silence in the pause, changing your cadence, and just allowing them to slow down. Because many of us, when we're feeling that attention on us, we tend to speed up. Right. And that internal gauge then forces us to speak faster, we muffle our words, we don't get the point across. But the best orators are those who slow their cadence, pause, let the audience catch up to what they just shared, 
that actually soaks in their attention and it's not awkward. So we use the power of video to play it back for our clients. And then they realized that wasn't awkward at all. I was feeling it because I labeled it as an awkward silence. And that awkward silence term is just so pervasive. And I, I hate it because I love the pause. I love slowing down. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Yeah, we should absolutely drop that frame of awkward pause because it prevents us from pausing. But I never thought about that until you shared this in that moment. And I guess we can also just acknowledge where the awkwardness comes from is that pauses are vulnerable. And it is because the attention zings right toward us and we do feel very vulnerable but that's actually what we wanted if we call it the awkward pause then we're not allowing ourselves to get that thing that we were aiming for let's face it no matter how well we put all these amazing tools into practice there's always the fear that we will still get rejected this is probably the number one reason that people aren't even trying that nagging thought of what if the other person still says no we've discussed the idea of rejection with zoe jonah and vanessa this fear of no is huge, right? This fear of rejection. And it's evolutionary, right? If we, we're social creatures, a no is like being distanced or cast out of the group, right? Being rejected socially. So it's not surprising that it would be so painful. We also tend to attribute that no to things like ourselves, like, oh, they said no because it's something about me or the relationship. They said no because we're not really as close as I thought we were or the thing we're asking, right? They said no because I shouldn't be asking for this thing. And in fact, most no's are circumstantial. Most no's are I can't do this right now because I don't have time or, you know, I'm not an expert in this or I just don't have the money for this right now or whatever it might be. And the interesting thing, as you said, we're so focused on the rejection, that fear of rejection that we forget that it's actually really hard to be the one doing the rejecting, right? And it involves all the same things. So when you reject someone, you're pushing them away, right? You want you don't want to damage a social connection, just like you don't want to be rejected and think a social connection is damaged. You don't want to be the one damaging a social connection, insinuating something negative about the other person. It's super awkward and uncomfortable to say no. And so 
as you kind of said, like people are less likely to send out even to these crazy requests. And we've shown this as well in our studies, right? Then we tend to think when they do, it's a lot harder than we tend to realize. We think that people just find it pretty easy to say no. So we have studies where we ask people who have been rejected romantically, how easy was it that for that person to reject you? They think it was pretty easy. But then we ask the other person, they're like, that was really hard to say no. You know, it's it actually took a lot. And I sort of had to cope with everything afterwards. Right. It's easy to go either to appeasement or to argument, right? So someone's resisting us and we capitulate or we fight back. But this ties back to what you were saying about not making excuses or explanations when we say no, because master influencers will key into those concerns or objections. And that's exactly what can get them what they want. And so in the Aikido school of handling resistance, the idea is that you welcome their resistance rather than pushing back against it. So you're meeting force with a welcome party. And you do this, first of all, just by listening. And second of all, by asking questions to try to understand what is it behind their concern or what are the deeper values underlying this disagreement. And then handling resistance when you're, you want to shift to asking them something. A super simple Aikido move is just asking them permission to ask them. So in a conversation, like even just like, can I ask you a question, right? But if it's, say you want to have a big conversation where you're, maybe you're going to ask for, say, a raise or promotion at work, giving somebody a heads up before you ask them helps diffuse their resistance because they didn't get caught off guard. And then also they're going to be prepared. And a third thing that you can do to help diffuse resistance, this one is so weird, but it's just reminding them in whatever way makes sense for the situation that you're not the boss of them, even if you are the boss of them. And what you're doing is you're appeasing their inner two-year-old who wants to say to any influence attempt, you're not the boss of me. And you're just saying before they say that, like, listen, I know I'm not the boss of you. So if you were talking to someone in a higher status role, let's say that it's at work, you might be saying, listen, I have this idea to propose and I know you're super busy or I know you have a lot of priorities, but if you have a few minutes, I'd love to share this with you. So it's just acknowledging you don't take their time and attention for granted. Maybe you're talking to a lower status person on the hierarchy at work and you're you're not going to say, listen, I know you must be busy. You have a lot of other priorities, but you might say something like, listen, it's not up to me, but, or you might say, the choice is yours and here's the situation. You can always tell people what your preference is. So it's not that you just give them the information. You're like, oh, whatever you want. You can say, you know, I think the best course of action is this one and here's why, but you might disagree. You can also be, this is maybe even beyond Aikido. It's being a ninja where you are yourself critiquing your own argument before they're critiquing your argument. And that way you've diffused their reactants and you have addressed these objections in a way that says they're not critical, they're not giant, maybe they're important, but they're completely and totally handleable. We like to feel like we're in charge. 
we're in control of our own actions, our behavior, and our decisions. But if someone else tries to influence us, suddenly it's not clear whether we're driving our behavior or they're driving our behavior. And so what we often do is we push back. We have essentially a, an anti-persuasion radar, like a missile defense system or a spidey sense that goes off when we sense someone's trying to persuade us. You know, if a telemarketer calls us on the phone or an ad comes on the television or our spouse even tries to get us to do something, we go, oh, wait, they're trying to persuade us. Hold on. Let me deploy these countermeasures to avoid being persuaded. I'll avoid the persuasion attempt. I'll ignore it. Or even worse, I'll counter-argue. Yeah, I'm sitting there listening to everything that person is saying, but rather than just listening, I'm thinking about all the reasons wrong with what they're suggesting, why it won't work, why it's too expensive, why it's too difficult. Uh, and so to really to change minds, we have to figure out how to reduce that reactance. Part of what the strategies that I talk about to reduce reactants are about is really figuring out, well, how do we not try to persuade people, but allow them to persuade themselves? How rather than kind of selling, can we get people to buy in and make them feel like participants in, in that change process? And when it comes to reactants, what strategies can we employ to get people to buy in instead of yeah. sell and push? One I would start with is this idea of providing a menu. Uh, and this came from talking to a lot of uh, great salespeople and, and great consultants. And what they said very simply is, you know, you're in a pitch meeting. Um, and a little bit like I talked about already, you know, you're making your pitch. You've got your fancy slides and your PowerPoint deck or you're on the phone, or whatever it is. And you think that person's listening, right? You think that uh, client or that boss or whoever it is you're trying to pitch is listening to your pitch. What they're really doing is they're poking holes in everything that you're saying. Yeah, sure, you say your product is better, but you know, how do I know it's going to cost less? And is it actually going to pan out? And is this service going to work? And how is this going to integrate with what we're already doing? Almost like a high school debate team kind of poking and prodding and figuring out all the problems with your message. And so essentially, you need to give them a better job, a different job. If you give them one option, their job is poking holes in, in that option. And so what great salespeople, what great consultants often do is they give people multiple options. They give them a menu, at least a couple of different choices, because what it does is it shifts the role of the listener. Now, rather than sitting there going, oh, what don't I like about this? They're sitting there going, oh, which of these do I like better? And because they're sitting there thinking about which of them they like better, they're much more likely to choose one at the end of that interaction right? Because they made the choice. And I call it providing a menu because you're not giving them ultimate, you know, unlimited choice. You're not saying you can do whatever you want. You're choosing the choice set, but you're letting them choose within that choice set. And that feeling of participation, that feeling that they had a role to play makes them much more likely to go along with, with what they end up doing at the end. It's kind of counterintuitive. You would think, wait, if I'm giving them choices, what if they choose the thing that I don't want them to choose? Yeah. But in actuality, there's always that struggle when we're only given one choice. Immediately, we start looking, well, what, what are my other options here? I can't yes. really have one option. Yeah. And notice, by the way, that you're choosing the choice set. So I agree that someone could say, well, um, you know, maybe they'll choose the option I don't want. But if you're smart about it, you give them a set of options that you're happy which are, whichever of those options they, they choose, right? P parents often talk about doing this with their kids. So you know, rather than saying, hey, you, know, you say, uh, eat your vegetables. I don't want to. Eat your chicken. I don't want to. So you say, oh, okay. Which one do you want to eat first, your chicken or your vegetables? Which do you want to put on first, you know, these pants or your shirt? And by giving them a choice, you're, you're giving them options. You're equally happy that they choose between, but because you're choosing the choice set, they're much more likely to go along. Let's turn this around and assume that we need to be the one that has to do the rejecting, especially for the people pleasers among us or those without strong boundaries. We struggle with rejecting someone. Whether that's a colleague infringing on our boundaries or a friend who always needs to borrow money, Vanessa has a great tip. And so the research does show, as we sort of noted before, that 
face-to-face on the spot is the hardest time to say no, right? In the moment, it's really hard to come up with the words. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We don't want to make the relationship uncomfortable or damage the relationship in any way. And so we want to come up with sort of a nice way to say it, but we might not be able to in the moment. And so often we'll default to just agreeing, right? Because that's the easier path. It's actually easier. And the research shows that if you're kind of just reacting mindlessly, like if someone asked to cut in line and you're not really paying attention, we're just like, sure, yeah, you know, because no is actually the harder thing to do. And so one big suggestion is to get through that in-person immediate moment, get through it without saying yes or no, right? So you don't actually have to say no and get someone to follow up over email where you can think about what you want to say. You're not put on the spot. You don't have to say no to someone's face. So that can be a really helpful thing. And then my colleagues and I have been playing around with this idea of no and. So you know how improv has yes and? Yep, yes and. We love this idea of instead of, you know, people think of like, no, but, but that's like doesn't have sort of the same rank. No and, like, no, I can't do this. And I'm still going to solve your problem in some way, especially with a boss, this can be helpful, right? And maybe I'll even create value for someone else. So you want me to do this thing. I really don't have, you know, I have too much on my plate. I can't do it right now. But I do know this junior person who might jump at this idea. And so I'm going to solve your problem and I give this to somebody else. And I'm not going to feel bad about it because I'm doing a no and, right? I'm creating value for like people over there. As we start wrapping this episode, there are a few more important misconceptions on influence that Zoe and Vanessa explain in the following clips. Paradox of charisma, first of all, is that by trying to be charismatic, you short circuit yourself because you're trying to be the center of attention. And we all know that is super, super annoying. And I've heard you talk about it as a low value behavior. So trying to be the center of attention makes you anti-charismatic. Another paradox of charisma is that when you want to get attention, we can best do that by giving our own attention to other people. I think there's definitely this impression that influence is this very concerted effort to change someone's mind and that if you've had influence, you're going to see a shift right there in front of you. Someone's going to you know, start changing their behavior immediately. Someone's going to tell you, oh, I concede that argument. I Now I see things totally differently. And I do think that we have this idea in our heads that that is what influence looks like. And then we get frustrated if we do try to shift someone's behavior, if we do try to shift someone's attitude and we don't seem we don't get that sort of immediate gratification. But in fact, so much influence happens in this delayed, cumulative way, right? We're just one part of shifting someone's behavior, one part of changing their attitude. Sometimes people don't even want us to know that we've influenced them, right? Like kids and their parents. How many things do you like remember that your parents have said to you that you you would never tell them are impacting you? And so I think that that is one reason we underestimate our influence, right? Is because we have this idea it's going to look a certain way. But in fact, influence is more subtle than that. And that doesn't mean we're not having a big impact. And people aren't thinking about our words, you know, weeks and months and years later. In yourself, what I find that I think is really interesting as I coach people over time, and I'm curious if you find this too, is that because we haven't been trained in this stuff before, and we should have been trained since babyhood, right? But essentially, we were trained to play small by our parents and our teachers, right? Because we haven't been trained in this stuff, it feels awkward 
And it's like learning a second language or a third language or whatever, where you have to be very conscious and think before you speak. And you feel self-conscious, doesn't feel authentic. But then over time, as you practice, it's not just that these particular behaviors become more habitual and they feel more authentic, but that actually eventually you don't need to use too many tactics at all because mm -hmm. you've become someone people want to say yes to. And you open your mouth and you have a big smile and your eyes are sparkling. And before you even say what your idea is, the other person is ready to persuade themselves that they want to go along with this. AJ, we got a powerful message from a recent X Factor Accelerator graduate, Cliff. He writes, AJ and Johnny, I wanted to write a quick message about my experience in the X Factor Accelerator and to thank you for your support. My experience with the team and supportive group has been truly transformative. I joined with the hopes of advancing my career, and what I gained was far beyond my expectations. After a deep dive into the program, I realized that I had to fix my mindset and improve my communication to break through in my career. Using the same principles that helped me manage a difficult conversation with my managing director, I realized by growing my influence, I was more confident asking for what I wanted in my social life. I really enjoyed and grew from your strategic networking strategies and high-value communication I practice inside the super helpful implementation sessions. I can honestly say that today my social life isn't just ordinary, it is extraordinary. I realized that influence in the workplace translates to charm and personal relationships. Looking forward to an upcoming camping trip with friends, it's clear to me that I'm not along for the ride anymore. I'm influencing my friends to enjoy their best lives too. Cliff, thanks for the message, man. That's amazing. Oh, I love it. And Cliff's just one of those guys who had all the parts for a Ferrari, but he put them in a Kia, right? And now he is the one driving to his destination. Feel like you're stuck in the ordinary, just coasting by with days blending into one another, or maybe you're effective, you get the job done, but there's something missing. Perhaps you're looking for a nudge, a boost, or a chance to elevate from ordinary to extraordinary. In the ordinary lane, you're comfortable. You're catching up with friends over a game, dinner, or at the bar. Your social circle's good, but you recognize it's dwindling. And the daily grind is, well, just that, a grind. What if there's more out there for you? Imagine being fully engaged, purposeful in every action, surrounding yourself with high-value friends who are starting businesses or making a significant impact in their communities, where social events are not just an obligation, but an opportunity, a strategic playground where you're the catalyst, the focal point. Unlock your unique X Factor, where influence and charm meet to make you extraordinary. Join a tribe of like-minded, high-value individuals who have a thirst for more, more engagement, more intention, more satisfaction. Transform from merely being respected to truly admired. Enter social settings with confidence. Rapidly grow your social capital and build the network you deserve. It's time to redefine your trajectory. Apply now for the X Factor Accelerator at unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. I have a quick ask, Johnny. If you oh. got value from this show or you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, could you do us a favor and write a review in your favorite podcast app? That would mean the world to us and it helps great listeners like yourself find the show. Also, I started posting to LinkedIn, Johnny, and I'd love to connect with our show listeners. You can I'm find me on LinkedIn, AJ Harbinger. I'm over there as well as Johnny Zubak. 
And we hope you all have an epic week. Yeah, I remember you. It was-